Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Menashe. This is the weekend edition. We have a very special show for you today. Today's show is part of a live talk I gave in Dallas, Texas. On today's show, we're talking about the philosophy behind raising capital. Listen to today's talk on raising capital. Welcome back. Thank you, Robert. So great to be here. I'm going to tell you a little bit of a story, not to make it about me, but just talk about the journey. So I started out as a technology guy, fresh out of university designing microprocessors. Some of the most fun I've had in my life. And you're going, really? Really was. 52% of the phone calls in North America were routed by a chip I designed for about a decade. Kind of cool. I've got chips in the Patriot missile. I've got chips in the seatback displays on most Airbus aircraft. I have chips in Cisco Wi-Fi access points, pachinko patchy slot machines in Japan with Sammy Sega and NVIDIA, and a whole host of other applications, too many to mention. And it was in the world of technology that I actually learned how to raise capital. I got in the world of startups, and let me tell you, the hardest thing to do is to go to somebody and say, I have an idea, no proven market, no proven track record, no proven revenue stream, I just have an idea, give me $50 million, and maybe in four years I'll, make you, I'll break even, and maybe in year five I'll make you some money. Are you lining up for that investment? Well, that's what, that's what the world of technology is. It really is, especially in the world of hardware design. And I learned how to raise money in that environment. Around 2008, 2009, there was something happening in real estate here in the United States, you might have heard of it. And I was flying back and forth to Tokyo every two weeks, building a new cellular network in Japan with the number four carrier there. I was getting burned out physically, but getting burned out emotionally. And at that point, I saw this opportunity to buy distressed real estate here in the United States and said, wow, this looks like the opportunity of a lifetime. And so I literally made a hard left turn in my career, got out of the world of technology and decided to move into the world of real estate investing. Along the way, I ran out of money, as most people do in this game, because it's a game of big dollars. And I don't care what level you're at, you will run out of money. And then I said, oh, that's right, Victor, you know how to raise capital. And I had to relearn that entire process right from scratch. And then when I did relearn the process, I realized that it looked exactly the same as it did in the world of technology. So I wrote a book called Magnetic Capital. Please go buy it, I need the money. <laughs> and it was really the rediscovery of the, when, when raising money is easy, there are a certain set of principles that are in place. And when those principles are in place, it's easy. But if you remove any one of those five principles, all of a sudden, raising money gets really hard. And we're going to talk about that today. Also, the host of the Real Estate Espresso podcast. It's a daily show, seven days a week. i uh, love to connect with you on that every day. Look me up on whatever your favorite platform is for podcasts. And we're going to talk about what it is that you need to do anything in life. We're here to talk about syndication, but I don't care what your thing is that you're looking to do. And, it, and by the way, congratulations, you're here in a seminar you're getting a third of what you need to be successful. No discredit to anyone here in the room, no discredit to the real estate guys, you're only getting a third by attending a seminar out of what you need. You're getting the knowledge, that's not enough, sorry. 
The second thing that you need is you need the emotional fortitude. You'll hear all these coaches and speakers talk about you need mindset. Yeah, that's it, you need mindset. That's, that's your problem, it's a mindset issue. Well, okay, you get that one licked and maybe you're two thirds of the way there. The third thing that you need, and this is actually the most important, is you need to be immersed in the right environment. There's a reason why all the elite figure skaters from all over the world, from Japan, from Poland, they all train at one of two rinks in Canada. It's not that they don't have ice there, right? It's they need to be in the right environment. It's the same here. Now, congratulations, you're actually in the right environment as well. So it's not just about consuming the content from the stage. It's about rubbing shoulders with the people in this room. There's an extraordinary amount of experience in this room. And your challenge, this is a scavenger hunt. I love this about the world of real estate investing and developing. It's unlike chip design, where you literally have to invent things. Here in this world, you don't have to invent anything. It's a scavenger hunt. The knowledge exists. It's your job to find it. And it's in this room. Okay. So what do I do today? I build buildings. Probably 95% of what we do is new construction. We've moved now significantly into a lot of land development. We've been doing land development for a number of years, and it's been a progression. We started out doing infill projects, and we'll talk about that. Today, we're doing subdivisions in multiple different locations, some of them quite large. We just, and I don't know if it's gonna complete or not. We just got 1,783 acres under contract outside Colorado Springs. Maybe it will pass due diligence, maybe it won't, but we're interested in taking on projects even on that scale. This is a project that we're doing right now in um, Boise, Idaho. It's a 45-acre project, 137 single-family homes, and we already have a buyer for the papered lots. We're planning to build it, and then along came a California home builder and said, we'd like to buy this from you, just papered lots, and we said, okay. So this is a, you know, part, of the, part of the whole process. We're completing a project. We have about a dozen projects underway. This is one that we're doing in Lake Charles, Louisiana. It's gonna be a case study for this afternoon, so I'll save that for then. But I don't want you to think that, because when we talk about big projects, it can be intimidating. It's hard to relate. You say, well, that you're way over here and you can't connect the dots between starting and the end point. Well, let me tell you, I started just like everybody else this was my very first investment in 2006. It was a one-bedroom apartment, four blocks from Parliament Hill, and I got into the medium-term rental business before Airbnb existed, specifically focused on parliamentary staff, embassy staff, folks that wanted to be within a radius of Parliament in Ottawa, Canada, which is my hometown, and built a good business around a portfolio of those. I'm out of that business today because it was only a good business. It wasn't a great business, and today we only do great business. So how to raise money? You've got to do one of, you have to, not one of, all of these five things. And we're going to go through each five of these. This is the core of the book Magnetic Capital. And if you do all of these five things well, raising money is remarkably easy. The hard part, Robert mentioned it, others have mentioned it, raising the money is actually the easy part of the project. The execution of the projects is the hard part. But when you do good projects and you get these five things right, raising the money is easy. So number one, you need a relationship. Number two, you need to establish trust. Number three, you need to have a track record. Show me your results. Number four, you've got to have a compelling opportunity. And this is where most people start. I've got a deal. You want to see my deal? Here's a deal. Got a deal. It's never about the deal. And then finally, you have to have that perfect alignment between the goals for the money and the goals for your project. 
So we'll go into the, each of these in a little bit more detail. So what is relationship? Some people like to go to networking events. And what is a networking event? This is where you go and you hand out business cards and you try and collect as many business cards. But when you do that, that's a very utilitarian thing. Utilitarian is kind of connected with the word use. Nobody likes to be used. Put up your hand if you like to be used. No, nobody does. And especially if you have money, some people want to develop a relationship with you for one reason, one reason only, because you have money. Well, people with money don't want to be used any more than you do. And so their, their guard is really up because they're very conscious of the fact that people want to develop a relationship for one reason, one reason only. So this is about genuine relationship building. And relationship building has a process. I'm going to describe it in a way that I promise you're going to never forget. Think about a normal romantic relationship. You know, you eye someone across the room and you catch their eye and, and, and then maybe you introduce each other and you go see a show together or maybe have dinner. And then a whole series of steps along the way, you might get together, get married, start a family and so on. But if you skip even one or two steps in that process, it goes from a normal relationship progression to creepy in a heartbeat. It does, ladies, am I right? It goes to creepy in a heartbeat. Yet somehow, in the world of business, how often do we see people go to creepy? Because they skip steps in the process. You see it all the time. Friend on Facebook, here, come like my page. That's creepy. Don't go to creepy. Don't go to creepy. It's not worth it. Relationships have all different forms of value. You want to give to a relationship, but you also ask yourself, what am I going to get from this relationship? It's always a two-way street. You might get advice. You might get access to opportunities. You might get introductions. You might get a friendship. Oh my gosh. You might get access to capital. You might get any of a host of things. But if you approach it from the perspective of a relationship, you don't want to see dollar signs on somebody's forehead every time you meet somebody. You want to develop genuine relationships. And if at some point down the road you end up doing business together, that's cool. But just focus on relationship building. People, if they're going to be parting with large sums of money, they're going to be doing it on the basis of a solid relationship, almost without exception. So that's number one, relationship. Number two, trust. Trust is more than just, is this an honest person? It's an entire psychological contract. It's a whole series of questions. Questions like, can I trust you to be open and transparent? Can I trust you, um, gee whiz, can I trust you to put together a good plan? Can I trust you to hire the right team? Can I trust you to execute the plan? Can I trust you to communicate in an open and transparent way when things go wrong? All of these things, can I trust you with small commitments? they all have to be in place. And if some of those are missing, it starts to chip away at the trust. There's a very good book by, you've heard of Stephen Covey, he wrote Seven Habits. His son, Stephen M. R. Covey, wrote a book called The Speed of Trust. I recommend you go get that book. Speed of Trust, it might be misfiled in the self-help section of the, of the bookstore, but go get that book. I promise you that book will change your life. And there's a clue in the title of the book that when trust exists, decisions happen quickly. If someone comes back and says, well, I don't know, we're gonna need three weeks to do you know, complete due diligence, there's a clue that maybe the trust hasn't been established yet. The speed of trust, and, it, and, and when I say it'll change your life, 
you'll see the world through a different lens even in your own personal relationships, not just business relations. Next, track record, results. Show me you know how to be successful. Show me what you did when things screwed up. Show me that if you're gonna do a medical office building that you've done nine before and they were all the same and they all, you know, there's a repeatability in the process. Now you might be asking yourself, well, I'm just getting started, I don't have a track record. How am I gonna raise any money? If I don't have a track record, am I gonna get a track record if I can't raise any money? It's a circular loop, I'm stuck. Anyone thinking that? Put up your hand. Well, this is not like your grade three math test where if you collaborate with your partner, you're cheating. This is, a, this is a team sport. So if you don't have that track record, bring someone into your team who does. My partner here on a lot of our US developments, his name is Bob Keener, he's currently in Houston, about to go into open heart surgery next week, but, so please pray for him. He's built 10,000 units so far in his career. So people look at me as a relative rookie in the world of real estate development. So when they ask for my track record, and I feel perfectly confident and competent to build any of these projects. But sometimes an institutional lender wants to see a very deep track record. So then I push Bob to the front and say, well, here's Bob. And that takes that discussion completely off the table. Do the same thing in our projects in Canada. My partner, John Bassey, has built some of the tallest high rises and he's our partner on some of our high rise concrete development projects. So bring the talent in your team don't feel like you have to do it all on your own. Uh, in every single case when I've been successful doing an ambitious project, it's because I hired my partner or I hired my boss. When I say hired, I, I recruited someone in the team that had more experience than me and had no ego about the fact that I brought someone in who was much more experienced, okay? Compelling opportunity. This is where most people start. Now, an opportunity that's truly compelling is a little bit like what's beauty in, you know, in the, it's in the eyes of the beholder. You know, is this image on the magazine cover beautiful? Well, it might be, but for one individual, the definition of beauty might be, I don't know, 100,000 square foot industrial building at a 8% cap rate. For someone else, it might be a medical office building. For someone else, it might be development land at less than X dollars per square foot. It all comes down to what is your definition of beauty? But when you have that, it's, it's aligning that definition with the goals for, the, for your partner, uh, for your, for your um, potential funding partner. So I'm gonna share with you a few strategies of what we think is compelling. This is a strategy that we have used extensively and we continue to use, and it's very simple. And we call this strategy, buy on the line, move the line. We've done this significantly in the core of Philadelphia where we've built a significant amount of smaller multifamily buildings. We started out in this area in Philadelphia, North Philadelphia, where on one side of this line, you have a very hot gentrified neighborhood. You've got Temple University to the east, you've got the river and Brewery Town to the west, you've got the Fairmount District to the south, and every single one of these, this, and, and in the middle of this, is the hood. You go one block too far and you're in the hood. And there are no, there's no comps in the hood for new product. So if you buy right on that line and redevelop that line, well, guess what? Now the line has moved. It's on the other side of your property. So you can go do that again and again and again. We've been in Philly now for 10 years. In this particular area, everywhere you see a circle 
on this particular slide is a collection of buildings. We've done land assemblies. We've probably purchased 85, 90 properties, all within about a 10 block radius, and completed these land assemblies. And if, depending on how much land we assembled, it, this might be a nine unit building, or it might be a 13 unit building, or a 15 unit building, or a, or a quadplex. It could be any of the above, depending on what the entitlement was. Sometimes we went through zoning to get higher density. Sometimes we decided to build by right because it was quicker. But regardless, we said, all right, we're gonna concentrate our assets in this area by buying land at a deep discount to the market. We know what the values are just on the other side of the line. And this is an opportunity to create significant amount of value. And you can do this. If you're thinking about where you live right now, almost every city in America has that line. Now the line has to be arbitrary. It cannot be a school district because that boundary is not gonna move. It can't be a municipal boundary because that line's probably not gonna move, not quickly. It can't be a freeway or a railway line. Sometimes, you know, who here is from Austin, Texas? Few people. East of I-35 was a no-fly zone for the longest time, and it took the university building a baseball stadium for all of a sudden the community to wake up and say, oh, I can go east of I-35 now, and now all of a sudden that entire area got lifted up. It took an anchor to really create that. And again, you, um, if you're thinking about this in your home market, I know you can visualize these opportunities and they're everywhere. When you start driving around, you'll look and you'll see areas, it, you know, it happens here in Dallas, in Fort Worth, in Houston, like in, in, in Fort Worth in the hospital district. If you're driving, you'll see these older homes and you'll see BMW, 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 and then you'll see like a 14-year-old minivan with kids' toys all over the front lawn and that's the line. And it exists everywhere and it's completely arbitrary. So this is one example, this is a nine unit building we did on Thompson Street in Philadelphia and we bought this for 130,000. We demolished three buildings. We spent about a million in hard construction cost, about a quarter million in soft cost and it appraised at 1.92 million. Our total investment was 1.42. Now, these ratios are not accidental. I want an interim exit in every project that we do. And what's an interim exit? I want to be able to refinance the project and be able to pull out the entire initial investment as part of that refinance. I can only do that if there's enough margin between the appraised value and your cost to make that happen. So we're targeting almost always 30% margin, which means something in the range of 70, maybe 75% loan to value. So you gotta have that 30% lift over and above your total investment. And you design that in. You gotta, if, if you're not gonna meet that hurdle, don't do the project. Because otherwise you're trading a $100 bill for 520s. And you can do that, but what's the point? Now, I can show you this project, and you might say, okay, I got lucky. But if I show you a dozen, there's a system. So I'm gonna show you two. This is another one, this one's on North College Avenue. The numbers are virtually identical, virtually identical. It was done a year later, so the construction cost was a little bit higher, but the ratios are basically the same. This one had slightly better views, so we got a little bit better rent, but it's basically the same project about four blocks away in the same neighborhood. And if you look at all of the major real estate investors, you know, Ken McElroy, we all do this. We're all looking for an interim exit because a refinance is not a taxable event. If you go and take a project to completion, you refinance, you pull out, you take all your chips off the table, you return the capital to investors, everyone's still in the deal, 
you're in for, you're, now have infinite return. Yeah, you could sell it and you could maybe 1031 that taxable event into something else, but why would you sell it? If you're already at infinite return, what are you gonna buy to replace it that's better than that? Now maybe someone comes along and offers you a stupid amount of money, you say, okay, I'm gonna sell it, I'll pay the tax, or I'll 1031, I'll go buy two. Okay, fine. But if you've already got infinite return, what's better than that? So just collect these things and keep holding on to them and keep building, because guess what? When your investor gets their money back, guess what their, what their next question is? What's next? What else you got? They don't want the money back. I'm glad to give them the money back because they want to know what's next. I always view every market through the lens of supply and demand. This is one of those laws of nature, one of those laws of physics almost. And if you violate the laws of supply and demand, you will be punished. And this is why I don't buy, for example, in shrinking markets. Now, some people are happy to go into Detroit and buy homes for a very low price and rent them out for $1,000 a month and the math works for them and okay, cool, it's just not for me. Detroit used to be 1.4 million people, today it's below 700,000. There's a reason why the prices are that low because there's far more supply than there is demand. I wanna be in markets where there is excess demand and a shortage of supply and I wanna see those market conditions persist for a good long time. You think about Austin, Texas, think about Nashville, think about, I mean, there's many markets around the country where those market conditions exist. We're active in uh, Boise. This is an area that's also seeing a lot of migration, a lot of influx of jobs. Today, uh, sales are happening still very quickly. It, there's a little bit more inventory in the market. At the peak, there was only six days of inventory. Today, there's about 30 days of inventory and you know all of the uh, the analysts are going, oh, the, the inventory's through the roof. Well, this is still deep in seller's market territory. You, you need four to six months of inventory to have a balanced market. So we are still in a condition where there's far more demand than supply. We're playing around with new product types. This is a stacked townhouse concept that we're, that we're gonna be trialing. We, we're not sure exactly where we're gonna build it yet, but we're looking at understanding not just where is their demand generally, but where is their demand specifically for specific products? And in my case study this afternoon, we're gonna be talking very specifically about product design. Now you might be thinking, product design? And I promise you, whether you are flipping a house or delivering the next generation of iPhone, you are in the product design business. And we'll talk about that. We're active in my home market after a long time of not doing anything. We're active in Ottawa, Canada. Prices are up 37% since the start of the pandemic. Inventory still very low, less than a month of inventory. And there were some very specific things that we're doing there. This is a current project that we're doing. It's an 87 unit condo tower, luxury condo tower. It started out as a higher unit count. We ended up reducing the number of units and making the units larger because that's what our target market our target client requires. Some of these units are bi-level units with two levels, some of them with gorgeous views of the river. So really designing the product for a very specific customer in that part of the city. That's what becomes a compelling opportunity when we're talking about finding, you know, what we're gonna be investing in. This is the last item. And this is making, figuring out the alignment between the goals for the money and the goals for the project. And the analogy that I use is it's like a pair of shoes. 
and you can go to the mall and you can find the most beautiful pair of shoes and my gosh, it's your lucky day they're on sale. But if they don't fit, you're not a buyer. I don't care how beautiful they are or how deep the discount. If they don't fit, you're not a buyer. And we understand it with shoes, but as soon as we start talking about money, people get all weird about it. But you've just got a million dollars sitting in your account. It's doing nothing. It's earning half a percent. What do you, why don't you invest in my project? It's because it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit. So don't try and do anything that's a forced fit. Because if it's forced, it's not going to work. And this is where you really need to assess the fit. And there's a whole bunch of questions like, what's the size of the investment? Some investors have a minimum investment. One investor I know is a $5 million minimum because less than that, it's not worth the paperwork. I know you're thinking, wow, I want to have that problem. But that's what it is for them because their scarce commodity isn't the money, it's the time. What's the term of the investment? Maybe they need the money back in six months and they don't want to tie it tied up for five years. Or maybe they want the money to be to work for the next 10 years. They don't want it back in six months. Whatever it might be, you've got to have alignment on the term of the investment. What's the liquidity? What's the rate of return? What's the risk? What's the tax consequence? What's the control structure? What's the security? And on and on and on. There's about a dozen of these, maybe more. And if even one of those is missing, it doesn't work. And it's very seductive to have something that almost works because something that almost works doesn't. Something that almost works doesn't. So again, don't try and force it. As soon as you know that this is not a fit, okay, don't waste their time and don't waste yours. So how do you get good? Practice, 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 practice. Get into deals, take a look at them, underwrite them, go through the process over and over and over. Every single one is gonna be a giant learning process for you. Become part of the right community. If you can't find it, create it. Attend conferences like this. Join the Syndication Mentoring Club. Get in the right environment. And then go buy my book. Thank you very much. Thank <laughs> you.